Hello, this is the game podcast from The Times. After the debacle in Gdansk, what's the future of Manchester United under Oli Gunnar Solskjaer? We'll ask today as well, can Chelsea get the upper hand on Manchester City and win the All-English Champions League final this weekend? Also, who do you think Gareth Southgate will be leaving out of his Euro 2020 England squad? And we'll discuss the beauty of the EFL playoffs with finals to come at Wembley all weekend. All that and more on another episode of The Game. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Alongside me today, Tom Clark, Tom Roddy and Jonathan Northcroft. Gentlemen, how are you? Not bad, Hugh. Not bad. Probably a bit better than you. Yes, you, you are probably all feeling a little bit better than me. And I've got to say, we, we've taken it global this week. We've got Tom Roddy, who's out in Porto ahead of the Champions League final. And we should say hello to Paul Hurst as well, our Manchester man, who's out in Gdansk after that Europa League final at last night and joins us for the start of the podcast. How are you, Paul? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. I'm good. We should begin the podcast today uh, with congratulations uh, from everyone at the game and at the Times to our colleague Gregor Robertson, who of course isn't with us for this episode, but did welcome a beautiful baby girl earlier on this week. So all of our love and congratulations to him and his partner. But it does mean that, Gregor, we will be without you and your sweetness and light that you bring to the podcast each and every time that we do it for the next couple of weeks, but uh, for the best possible reason. So Gregor will be back to give us all of his thoughts on Scotland for Euro 2020, of course. Um but look, uh, we should start with the happy vibe, keep it going and say congratulations too to Villarreal. They, they won their first European final. Unai Emery gets to respond to all the doubters. Manchester United, on the other hand, were pathetic, appalling. Uh, put in one of those, um, those performances that we all saw coming, as did Villarreal, as advertised. And it was really interesting that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer couldn't get the better of a team that I think everyone who'd seen them play knew they would do. But it was the same old story, a team that defends deep and Manchester United finding it hard to break them down. Now, we'll talk about all the, the factors on the evening, that fantastic uh, penalty shootout as well, whether David De Gea really needs to start practicing penalties more, not just saving them, but taking them as well with Paul Hurst. Paul, you went to the match last night. Just tell us your reflections. I just thought it was a, a very poor performance from from United. As, as you say, it was you know a team that sat back and invited United on again, and they just looked didn't, didn't really have any ideas. They didn't really create anything over 120 minutes, which is a uh, you know, it's pretty alarming, really, when you consider that Villarreal, you know, aren't exactly the you know the Harlem Globetrotters. They they finished seventh in La Liga this year. They they're not um, an amazing team by any stretch. So. It was just an all-round poor performance from from United, and I, I don't think the manager um, sort of covered himself in much glory either last night with with his lack of sub- substitutions. I mean, the, the players just looked absolutely drained when they got to extra time, uh, the sixty-first match of the season, and they were just all knackered. And he, he didn't make a substitution until the hundredth minute, so it was um, it was a bad performance from from everyone concerned last night. Lots of people reflecting on the, the lack of substitution to saying Solskjaer doesn't trust his bench. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I think that's the case. And I, I was there last night thinking, I had a sense of deja vu. It was exactly like the the semi-final against Seville last year where he didn't make a substitution until the 87th minute. I mean, I was watching the watching the subs warm up. You know, uh, Ahmad went out for warm-up, uh, Dan James, Matic, Fred. I mean, even Maguire 
came out for a stroll and a stretch and he, you know, he was never going to come on. But they're all, you know, ready to go. And I was just looking at Rashford and he, he could barely move, but he, he, he was, he kept, Solskjaer kept him on the pitch and it was, um, you know, it's quite surprising really. So, so I, I do, I do think it is, uh, uh, you know, it shows that, that Solskjaer doesn't think he's got the strength in depth uh, in the squad, that he doesn't have the players to come off the bench and, and change a game. Um, so, you know, that, that suggests that he, he does think that the squad needs strengthening quite significantly this summer. This was his big moment, really, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And in many ways, he froze. Where do you think it leaves him in his role at the club? Well, I think he's secure. I don't think there's any suggestion that he's, he's in danger now. You, you know, we, we should remember that they finished second this season with more points than they had last season. I know second isn't something that United should be striving for but when you you know when you talk to people at the club they talk about a long-term project and and you know uh, um, moving forward um, certainly with with Solskjaer um, in charge and they think that they will be getting you know will be closer to City next year um, but th- this idea that you know that they that they keep falling in the, in the kind of final stretch is not a good look for Solskjaer it's not a good tag to have around his neck he's it's United are a club that you know boasts about winning trophies. Um, so if if Solskjaer you know doesn't deliver one, it just reflects pretty um, pretty poorly on him. And I, I just think last night was um, was an open goal for him really, and, and they just all all froze really. Have you ever seen a shootout as mad as that? <laughs> well, I've, I'm just looking at my notes now from the from the um, shootout, and it's you know over three pages. Yeah, he went on for that long. Um, I must admit, my, my handwriting isn't the, the neatest, so that's probably why it didn't stretch <laughs> over three pages. But um, uh, you know, yeah, it was it was a, a crazy shootout, and I, I was just looking at De Gea and thinking he just doesn't look like he's gonna save one of these. I think he's he's got a pretty poor record in in shootouts. He's not saved a penalty for a few years, and. It, it looked like I was watching it last night. I thought it's, it's going to take a Villarreal player missing the target for United to win this shootout. They're, they're that put he looks that yeah, poor day. So as soon as soon as he stepped up to take it, I thought right, this if he misses this, it's you know it sums up his night really. Um, I, mean, I don't know whether Henderson would have made a uh, made any difference to this. I'm not sure what his penalty record is like, and you know De Gea is a is a, an experienced goalkeeper, but it just kind of it, it kind of summed United's night up. Really, nothing nothing was working for them at all. Hursty, do you think the indecision over the goalkeepers and being challenged by Henderson this season? You talk about De Gea's confidence. Do you think that affected it? You know, he he's been a leading man for Man United for so long. He's one of their more experienced players, big game players. Do you think in that moment it played might have played on his mind the fact that this season he's had the Am I in? Am I number one? Yeah, well, I, th- I think if you look at his performances recently, they- they've been quite good. Um, he-, he has looked pretty confident when he's played, but he's not. That's not been the case all season, and it's the same with Henderson as well. He's had a uh, he's had a few good games, and but he's had a couple of bad ones as well. Thinking of to the um, to the Liverpool match at Old Trafford recently, he was very poor then. So I think with the old keeper, maybe I'm a bit too old fashioned, but I just think you've got to have a number one. You've got to have a guy who who plays every week, and you know that that consistency 
um, is not just important for the goalkeeper, but it's important for the back four as well. Because they're not the no two goalkeepers are exactly the same, are they? Um, yeah, I think you know one's. Yeah, I think De Gea is probably better with his feet than Henderson is. Um, although they're both both decent in that department, um, but they've both got different strengths and weaknesses and different quirks to their game, um, particularly when it comes to coming for crosses from corners. Um, so I, I think that affects the defence as well. So yeah, I think next season he's, he's got to. I think he's got to pick with a uh, stick with a number one basically um, throughout the season. He, he can't he's, he can't be chopping and changing it every week. United conceded another goal from a set piece um, in a, at a key moment. You, you've been watching really closely all season. And what, what do you think the problem is? I mean, you know, someone was saying it was Harry Maguire wasn't on the pitch, but they've conceded with Maguire on the pitch as well. So what, what is it with these set pieces that isn't happening? It's so predictable, isn't it, now when when United concede from a set piece? So it's, I think it's... I remember watching Gary Neville speak in detail about this, and it's... It's just about winning the first ball. They never seem to win the first ball. Um, get the first kind of touch on it um, from a corner, and and they're always relying on people um, defenders mopping up. And that is it's such a such a huge risk to take. That isn't it? Because uh, you know it could come up, a corner could fly in off anyone, couldn't it? So I, I don't know whether it's to do with the, the the like the marking. I don't know whether they know which zones they're supposed to be in or whether whether someone needs to kind of take ownership and like you know be be a leader in that box and kind of sort everyone um, organize everyone to be in certain positions, but they just look very very cagey um, whenever a cross comes in, and I think there's also been quite a big problem this se- this season with um, Wan Bissaka um, not being able to clear balls that come over the the top of him as well. He always gets caught out. Uh, he, he almost gets kind of tucked into um, the centre half position. Um, uh, and he leaves his winger kind of open as well. Um, so the, organizationally at the back, they just um, they just don't seem to, uh, to to be at the races. Really, it's it's pretty um, it's pretty concerning, really. Paul, I know you're in Gdansk and probably got a plane to catch. So I'm not going to keep you much longer, and I do want to ask you a question about Manchester City. But I do have a view that I think Manchester United at the moment, as a, as an entity, those that have played for the club that are currently playing for the club and that currently work for the club are, are a little bit stuck, I think, in the past, almost too much, you know, and, and because we're going to talk about Manchester City next, it's a perfect juxtaposition. You know, there was a lot of talk that that almost going into this match, Manchester United just had to put 11 of their best players out on the pitch and they would win. You know, the building blocks just aren't there, whether it, it be the coaching or the infrastructure for this club to be the best club in the world. And the fact that people keep talking about it like it's the best club in the world or should be the best club in the world, as if it's just some sort of you, you put the shirt on and that's how it happened. It's, it really, really does great on me because it's, it does now seem totally delusional. This is the biggest club in the world. This is the best club in the world. We know about the finances, but it just takes more right now. Do you think Manchester United, we spoke about them bridging the gap to City in terms of the table, can bridge the gap in all the other areas? I, I think you're right. I think they are. Solskjaer is a great you know, a great fan of looking to the past and, you know, having a bit of Jack and Ori in his press conferences and, you know, talking about tales of of um, yesteryear. But I, I, I do think it is, it, it is kind of, you know, it does hinder United. They, you know, they, they, they when they're looking to the past because they're looking, looking back to a past that is full of, 
you know, of glory and, and so many trophies. So they're looking, the bar is set really high. So they, you know, they measure themselves against the, the achievements of, you know, of Sir Alex Ferguson and, and Matt Busby. And that it's, it's just, a, you know, a ridiculous concept really because, you know, football's changed and, and United haven't kind of moved on with the times, I don't think. I think this is one of the frustrations that Jose Mourinho had during his time at United, that they seem to be always looking to the past and always talking about the class of 92 and etc. When, you know, the, the here and now, United just aren't the, the greatest football club in the world. But they're, they're, they're miles off. They've only won three trophies um, since since uh, Ferguson retired. And, you know, it's, it's just not, they can't keep branding themselves the biggest football club in the world. Um, if, if they can't, you know, and if they don't win trophies, they can't keep telling everyone where the biggest, where the best, and then not deliver. You know, success isn't finishing second in the league to United historically. Um, and the more that they keep talking about their past successes, the more that they, you know, the current achievements are going to look worse. So I think they do need to kind of detach themselves from that past and, and start looking forward, really. And just quickly, could be the best week ever for Manchester City fans. They've got the first part <laughs> complete with with United's defeat and they're off in Porto where Tom Roddy is already having a good time and I'm sure celebrating last night's win for Villarreal. Do you think they can complete it and, and win their first Champions League? I think so, yeah. I think it's the difference between this City team and the last uh, City team of the last few years is that Pep, he's, he's very settled with his team. I, I don't think we'll see any surprises in the starting line upon on Saturday, I think it'll be, you know, four two three one with the false nine of De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva behind, um, you know, Foden and Mares on the wings. I, I think that is he's got a settled team now and he's he's happy with it. Whereas in the past we'd see, you know, Gundogan played on the right wing against Liverpool a, a few years ago, um, um, and Laporte played left back that night as well. So I think we see less tinkering from Pep and. That's that's what we've seen all season, and I think that's why they've been so so consistent. And you know, he's he's in a confident mood. You can tell. I mean, I've ne- I've never seen him so so calm and kind of zen. Really, he just seems like he's he's very focused on the job. And you know, he's. I, I just think they they are at a higher level than Chelsea at the moment. Paul Hurst, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the game podcast. I'll leave you to to, to get that flight and run off to the airport, uh, but I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Uh, That's Paul Hurst, our Manchester man in the times, of course. Tom Roddy, who's of course out in Porto ahead of the Champions League final. I'm I'm, I'm hoping you got a chance to see the game uh, in the Europa League. What did you think about, firstly, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as a manager and, and what it says about the club going forward? Because there was so much said about who might come into the club this summer. Is it going to be Erling Haaland? And needing to show the progress was there, as Johnny said, that confirmation that this is going to be a club that's going to win trophies over the coming seasons. Has that gone out the window? Well, it, here there were there were plenty of cheers from um, those wearing sky blue when uh, when Villarreal scored and when De Gea missed that penalty. Um, so so there was no lost love there. Um, but I. I I think I kind of felt going into that game, I, I never had, never, it's easy to say now maybe, but never felt that Solskjaer has been the guy 
to lead a team. He doesn't have that kind of zen and confidence uh, or, or authentic zen and confidence that Percy was just talking about uh, that Guardiola seems to have at the moment. And the, and, the, and the one thing I remember last summer, Jamie Carragher saying uh, United are one player away from really challenging one player away. And it was during the talk of Jadon Sancho going to United and the long, the long drawn out uh, talks about Harry Kane constantly being linked to the club. Uh, but at the same time, you've sort of seen the, the fragility of that team over, over the past few couple of weeks without Harry Maguire. Um, I know they've, uh, as Johnny said, they they concede from set pieces even with him in the team, but they just look even more fragile without him. Uh, and and after last night's game, you don't you don't expect to see any knee jerk reactions. And I wouldn't sort of I wouldn't say that it's time for Solskjaer to go. But at the same time, it appears that United uh, an opportunity may present itself with United because there's talk that Pochettino has been in conversation with Tottenham about going back there, which suggests that he's available. Um, even after a, just a, a year with, with PSG, it suggests he's available. So there's an opportunity there for a, a guy that they, they have looked at and wanted in the past. So after last night, it may be something that they would consider. Tom mentions there, you know, Jamie Carragher's reference to United being one player away. I think they're one coach away. And I don't mean that in the very aggressive way that I've said before about they must sack Solskjaer. Hursty referred to United being wedded to this idea of the past. And Johnny has quite rightly praised Solskjaer for the way that he's rebooted the club and pushed them towards um, the playing the right way and the Manchester United way. But I mean, Alex Ferguson had a myriad of brilliant assistant coaches. Carlos Queiroz was widely credited for taking that United team on tactically. And, you know, and Fergie was the overlord, if you like. Steve McLaren played a massive part in the 1999 success. United clearly are happy with Solskjaer in lots of respects. And if they want to stick with that, they should maybe go out and find the best and brightest young coaches because tactically they're not good enough. And that was what it was about last night. Hugh, as a Manchester United fan, you and other people I know, they knew what was coming before the game. You can't break down big teams. Uh, can't break down teams like Villarreal, sorry, who set up like that. And so you need a more innovative approach with in when it comes to tactics. So maybe the, that's if they're going to stick with Solskjaer in a kind of managerial Ferguson-style overlord and be so wedded to the past, really go all in and go and get find a Carlos Queiroz or a Steve McLaren to take you on tactically. That's the uh, that's that would be an option to me. I agree with you. Um, and, and that's what I mean when I talk about just saying that you're the best club in the world, but not pushing the envelope in the way that you need to, in the way that, firstly, not just your competitors in European competition have done, but your domestic comp- I mean, the idea that Manchester United wouldn't be at the forefront domestically, at least domestically, is like, you know, madness from what we've seen over the past 30 years. You know, they're the club that's meant to be taking all the risk in both their football and also what they're doing off the pitch. And they've been left behind in that category by the likes of Liverpool and Manchester City and probably Chelsea now as well. You look what they've done this season. They took the chance to get rid of Frank Lampard. Last summer, they went and bought players that they thought might be the next big thing because they're pushing, trying to push the boundaries to stay at the top of, of elite world football. And that's what other clubs in Europe seem to have been doing. Granted, it's put loads of them in debt, but they're trying. The point is with Manchester United, 
there's a feeling that if you bring a player out of the academy, that's what you're doing. Now, that's a great thing that every club wants. But it does, and, and Mason Greenwood, for example, shows you that there are great talents that you can bring in. But you've also got to go out and spend the right money in the transfer market on players from abroad broad or other clubs in the league. And there have been players who have screamed out for Manchester United should have been bought by the club over the last six, seven years. I remember Riyad Mahrez was left for a year at Leicester when he clearly wanted to leave and the club was open to selling him and there was talk of Arsenal and there was talk of Liverpool. And eventually Manchester City just went, well, if almost if no one else is going to take him, we might as well take him. And that was a point where Manchester United had no one to play on the right-hand side. Mahrez would have started every single week. That's just an example of it, by the way. There are, there are plenty of other players who Manchester United could have gone and got who would have improved the team with genuine quality. And I, I also still... I feel the money that they've spent and although they've made improvements, what Manchester United have done in the transfer market is say, let's take one step. They haven't said, let's be the best the best club in the league or let's be the best club in Europe. They've gone to try and sign a player who will, oh, we've got a really, we've got a bad problem conceding goals. Let's get Harry Maguire for 80 million and Aaron Wan-Bissaka for 45 million because they can defend. It's like, but is that your overall goal? Is that what, is that what, is, are you going to win the Champions League or the Premier League by doing that? No, but we might get in the top four. It's such short-term approach to recruitment that I think it's the thing that's kept them back. And I know people go, oh, well, they got Bruno Fernandes and what a great player he's been. And they went and got Paul Pogba for 89 million. But even that transfer was not buying a player for a world record fee that was definitely going to transform your team. It was a decent player from Juventus' midfield who probably cost 89 million pounds for branding purposes and advertising revenue. You know, there has there has not been a signing. And I know we spoke about it at the start of the season on the podcast, and I've spoken about it elsewhere. When I said last year, after the final day of the window, Manchester United hadn't signed a single player out of the five players they signed last summer, who I felt was guaranteed to improve their team. Because Edison Cavani, as great as he's been, had been out for 10 months, hadn't played a game for 10 months, and had been available all summer, no one had signed him. So my impression at that point in time was what's going on. I think he's been great for the team. And he has improved the, certainly the striker position. But elsewhere, Donny van der Beek hasn't started. And there wasn't really a guaranteed starting position for him when he got signed for 40 million quid. Ahmad Diallo hasn't played and had only played three games for Atalanta when he did sign. For Kunda Palestri, I mean, it was never going to start regularly for the club either. Like, they just haven't pushed the boundaries, tried to be, like they keep saying, the best club in the world. And for me, that's the reason we, we are where we are. Look, I'm not in charge at Manchester United. And there will be changes, of course, with Ed Woodward going out at the end of the, the year. But, um, but the manager position falls into the category of not pressing yourself to be the best club in the world. Because right now, I wouldn't say sack Ole Gunnar Solskjaer off the back of the defeat. But what I would say is there's a good chance in a few weeks, Mauricio Pochettino is available, Antonio Conte is available, Zinedine Zidane is available. And you've got Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with one year left on his deal and nowhere near as much compensation as you might need to pay him in six months' time or eight months' time if the start of next season is poor and you have to get rid of him having just signed a new deal with him. So as a business, as an entity, make a strong decision. And there hasn't been enough of that at Manchester United. Rant over. 
that is the wrap on Manchester United, who, of course, beaten in the Europa League final. And it could get worse uh, if their city rivals, Manchester City, win the Champions League final this weekend. It will show exactly where the power base now is in Manchester uh, as they take on Chelsea in an all-English Champions League final. Now, for this discussion, I just thought, let's let's talk tactically, because this is really an intriguing contest between Thomas Tuchel and uh, Pep Guardiola as to who and how they're going to set up for this weekend's match. Now, Tom Roddy, you're already out in Porto. Team news, I think Edu Mendy and N'Golo Conte have trained and should be available uh, for Chelsea this weekend. And it looks like Pep Guardiola is going to be able to play as strong as possible team as well, which could make for a cracking game. Firstly, how's the atmosphere out there, the fans, etc.? cetera? Uh, and also, how do you think the two managers will approach it? Yeah, the, the the vibe the vibe is very um, cheerful. The, there's fans began arriving uh, the weekend just gone on Saturday Sunday. Met some who don't have tickets but are hoping to get tickets, especially from from Manchester as well. The city fans who see this opportunity. I met a couple last night who have booked a ticket to every single final for the last seven years just in the hope. That they that City would make it that they'd make it and finally they have um, but one of them doesn't have a ticket so they've got they've got a race to get one this week it's it's been interesting as well because um, the, the the local TV or the, the sorry the national TV TBI in Portugal have been filming down here at the Riviera um, and it's because of the the, the, the fans being coming here and and Porto opening up again and there's this there's a bit of a concern in Porto because it's obviously a tourist destination a, a tourism city a beautiful tourism city and um, they rely heavily on it and the bars and the restaurants and the cafes are, are pleased to be open again and pleased to be making a mon- money again but two weeks ago when sporting won the league here there were there were huge celebrations and a concentration of fans watching on giant screens and the covid cases there went up so there's a little bit of an issue going on here a little bit of a divide where the the the, the businesses are pleased to have fans back but the, the the rest of the population is a little bit concerned about the impact it could have on the city um on the, on the on the game it's funny because I completely agree agree with what Paul said earlier in that Guardiola seems to be very, very relaxed and, and, and as confident, Paul sees him a lot more than me, but as confident as I've ever seen him as well. And it, this is the best season we've seen uh, of him at City. And yet the closer, the closer this game gets, the more I think about the, the tactical side of it. The more I, the more I worry that, that Pep does overthink it, and I know that's a, I know that's becoming a bit, a little bit of a cliche, especially in the Champions League. And this is the year in which you would expect he wouldn't, because he doesn't. But the only reason I do wonder whether he does is because of Thomas Tuchel. He's he, Pep hasn't come across many coaches who have changed systems in the same way Tuchel has. And, and, and we've seen, we've seen the little things that he brings in over the years. I mean, in the, in the FA cup final, he decided to play Reese James uh, in, in his three at the back and it worked for, for most of the game, but, but they have a history Tuchel and, and Guardiola from Germany, uh, Tuchel at Mainz and Dortmund and 
and Guardiola at Bayern and and they had they had these meetings to talk about the tactical side of their games and 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 out there in Germany Pep got the got the best of Tuchel quite often there was there was one game between Dortmund and Bayern where uh, where Pep just forgot about the midfield which we <laughs> we could barely imagine happening and they they beat uh, Dortmund 4-1 with Jerome Boateng getting two assists because it was almost this direct approach to the game and yet in the last six weeks here we've seen Tuchel get the better of Guardiola so I, the closer it gets the more I, I think this is going to be a hugely tactical game and whether Guardiola just goes with this confident, this confident mindset that this team is an incredible team that can overcome Chelsea, who are still quite inexperienced at this level and 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 have been faltered a little bit in the last couple of weeks, or, or whether he overthinks it. Tom Clark, what do you think about the weekend and what Tom's had to say about? Just that element of doubt that Thomas Tuchel might have put in Pep Guardiola's mind. Yeah, I think Tom makes a really good point that they're almost outgaming each other before the match has even started. Um, just two men staring at each other across the room trying to think, what are you thinking? No, what are you thinking? Are you going to do that that clever trick? Are you going to do that clever trick? Um, and I, I, From a neutral's perspective, I really hope they don't because I think if we have the confident Manchester City against the... Uh, aggressive pressing Chelsea we could have a really good game um, if we have the overthinking Tuchel and Pep we could have quite a messy nil-nil um, so I, it could go one or two ways I think I'm really hoping it could be a really good final um, yes quite tactical but quite entertaining in a in a really pure sense um, if the likes of Kante are fit and if as Hursty said earlier Pep picks the team that has done done but right by him all season, then I think we could have a really, really entertaining version of a tactical game. But it's, yeah, it's that kind of uh, overthinking from both of them. And I think as well, some of Tuchel and Chelsea's recent performances maybe make me slightly worried that he might be the one who overthinks it. You know, Hugh, you've talked about it for a long time with Pep. I think that Leicester final will have got into his head a little bit with Tuchel. As Tom said, the Reese James thing worked. The Aspilicueta right wing back didn't. Um, and so I wonder whether he is actually the one of the two managers who's in a position to be lying awake at night the night before, really, really overthinking it. Well, he's got this funny record in finals and, and the evidence of the FA Cup final was was quite negative against him where he kind of did what Guardiola is always accused of doing, um, you know, which was almost needlessly adapting to his game to try and play against what you might say was a, a, a smaller team in terms of who was the favourites in the game. And you can look back, even at PSG, he, he lost cup finals. I think he lost one to Rennes and, and, and on occasion on those big games didn't, didn't come with his um, sort of normal game plan. Um, it's interesting what Tom says about Pep and how relaxed he is, uh, which, which is very, very noticeable. I mean, I was in um, I was in Portugal last year for the Champions League, and he was really relaxed before the Lyon game, and we were all writing about how this time he wasn't going to overthink it. And then there was a you know on the eve of the game. He seemed to change, the demeanour changed and, and there's a few stories about, you know, second thoughts and meetings at the hotel and, and he did change. 
I wonder if the key actually might be um, that he's got a slightly different backroom team around him now. I think Juan Malilo has played a huge role. His kind of mentor, he settles him down. He talks sense into Pep. Um, he is his kind of uh, sort of muse almost, and and I think he's created a a sort of different environment um, for for Pep. Um, Tom makes a really interesting point about Chelsea and momentum because I've, I've been thinking Chelsea were going to sneak this final for quite a long time, but the evidence the last few games suggests that what they had under Tuchel was you know a, a kind of the players were suddenly all on the same play, page and they suddenly had this intensity about them and a commitment to a game plan. And that seems to have ebbed away for different reasons in the last couple of weeks. Um, and I think there's a different feel about them now. And then the, the other fascinating thing is, you know, Chelsea have beaten City twice, but on both occasions, City didn't have the the A team out. And it's about how much you can read into those games. Um so many fascinating questions. It's why it's such a great matchup. Um, I, I'm going to put my money on City though. Now I think I think I, I've, I'm kind of flip flopping on this. I'd have said Chelsea until a week or two ago. I think I think City now. Do we do the four three three Manchester City this weekend, or do we do the almost four four two double false nine that they did against Paris Saint Germain in the second leg? I'm just I'm really intrigued to see what he thinks is his best team because I'll say it again. I've said it before. I think a striker might work for Manchester City this this weekend because I think up against the three of Chelsea at the back, who's that threat? There might not be that many chances. You need when when it falls, you need someone to take them. Now, Chelsea have their issues with taking chances for other reasons, but we saw the ball getting, you know, going across the six yard box. No one there for a tap in. The four four two was Mares, Fernandinho, Gundogan, and Foden with De Bruyne and Silva as almost a double false nine. That was in the second leg against PSG. The first leg was a 4-3-3. Gundogan, Rodri played this time around with Silva as a middle three. Foden and Mares either side of De Bruyne, who played alone as a false nine. Do you think we'll see either of those formations and which one do you think works best against this Chelsea side? Because neither of those, of course, although Manchester City won both legs, was up against a back five slash back three centre-backs. Tom, Clark? Oh, it's a very tough one. I mean... One of the things with Chelsea is that you don't want to play too much in front of them. And that's sometimes what can happen with false nines is that teams then end up knocking it around and trying to find space. And when you're playing against a team with a back three and then in front of that back three, you've got Kante and one other midfielder, you're almost playing into their hands because that's what Chelsea want. They want you to be in those areas to nick the ball and then pounce. And I think so. I think you make an interesting point about the striker because, as well as finishing the chances, those strikers can make runs in behind, pull defenders out of position, and create space for the likes of De Bruyne and Phil Foden and Riyad Mahrez to maybe get chances and get shots away. Um, what City don't want is Chelsea on the edge of their area and City knocking it left, right, left, right, left, right, back and forth, round and round and round we go without really getting anywhere. Um, I mean, we were. it was slightly said in jest, but I did think it was genuinely interesting what Pep tried in the home league game in terms of he was playing those balls to, to kind of keep Kante out of the game, bypass Kante, i.e. not play through the midfield in that way that Man City do, playing little dinked balls, you know, the, the Louis van Gaal long pass, uh, not a long ball, but a long pass, but to try and negate the Kante threat, which almost comes from 
playing in those little intricate areas. So I think you could be right about a striker in some senses. And even if it is a false nine, it might not be the traditional false nine, i.e. the coming short to link play. You might be seeing likes of Rian Mares and Phil Foden being asked to run in behind and create and create space and pull some of the Chelsea defenders out of position. Tom Roddy, which club do you think the final's more important for? Manchester City in their first European Cup final and haven't been in a European Cup final of any description for 51 years, but they have spent a lot of money under this ownership group who've been targeting this trophy. And then you've got Chelsea and Roman Abramovich, who, although they've won it, of course, have spent a lot of money too. They've brought in Thomas Tuchel, who was beaten in last year's final. And there are so many subplots. I just wonder who you think it held more importance for. I think it's City. Uh, the, the, the feeling here, certainly last night, was that the pressure is is on City because because they've not been here before, because they have been working to get to this moment for so long, because Guardiola was 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 brought in, you know, for this for this very reason to to take them to a Champions League final and and be. The European champions, um, and and they've fallen short so far. However successful they've been, uh, and just it, it's been so enjoyable um, and breathtaking at times to to watch Guardiola's City play. Uh, the, the the big thing about it has always been them getting the Champions League. Um, that was what he was he was largely brought brought in for, but. I, I, at the same time, Chelsea, you can say Chelsea have, have been here and done it, but this team hasn't. Um, and there is, I think there's, there will, Tuchel will be feeling a lot of pressure because he's the first manager to take two different teams to consecutive finals. Um, and, and of course, last year, PSG didn't, didn't get over the line. So, He'll be feeling. He'll be desperate to, to do it. Um, the, the, he's trying. He's trying to take the pressure off Chelsea because for them this is almost a uh, this is almost a bonus, and it is in a way. But his 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 goal when he came in <laughs> to <laughs> we should we should have mentioned that you're outside a bar in Porto and and there are some warning signs not just because people know the the recording of the podcast is going on but for other reasons too yeah yeah i, I think it's a, i think it's a giant boat um, just trying to to get make its way onto the game podcast um it, <laughs> uh, well well we Tuchel and chelsea he he is he is trying he's been trying to take the pressure off them because they are an inexperienced side and he's been working out this week how they should be going into this game how he needs to mentally prepare this team and i think it is taking off the pressure uh, for the team because um, because they haven't been here before um, uh, and also he has been saying over the last few days the last week since that game against Villa that the goal for him the goal for Chelsea when he replaced Frank Lampard in January was to be in the Champions League next season and they did that they stumbled over the line but they've done that so this is just an added bonus on top and I think that's the approach he's taking the kind of taking the pressure off and and just trying to enjoy it um, just on on and, on and just on the tactical side of things I think you're totally right uh, Tom Clark is totally right that uh, City need to 
I, I think Riyad Mahrez could be really big in this game um, because of his width, and that's what City need to do. They need to Chelsea are weakest in their in their wide areas. They need to they they will want to push City into the centre where Angolo Kante is. And I think if if City are to do it, I I feel I've got a hunch that Riyad Mahrez is going to be the key player. Uh, we will reflect on what hopefully will be the cracking version of the Champions League final between Manchester City and Chelsea, and not the turgid nil-nil uh, that it might be if it does turn into one of those tactical battles on Monday in the game podcast. Of course, uh, up next we'll be talking about Mauricio Pochettino and Tottenham Hotspur. Could there be an unlikely reunion about to happen? We'll look ahead to the playoff final too. All that to come on the game podcast. But remember, if you're enjoying it, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. And make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times as well. You'll get a month free if you sign up right now. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself started. So news reports are hitting us as we speak on the game podcast that something that would be very surprising is about to happen in North London because after the departure of Jose Mourinho, still we don't know who the new boss might be. Unlikely to be Ryan Mason, we know that much. But being reported today, Mauricio Pochettino, who's currently the Paris Saint-Germain manager and of course the man who led Tottenham Hotspur to a Champions League final a few seasons ago, could be the man to come back into the club. Now, we'd heard rumours a few weeks ago that they were after a manager in the mould of Mauricio Pochettino and they have absolutely nailed it if it is to be Pochettino who returns. It would surprise me. Jonathan Northcroft, can you understand this? I can wholly understand it from a, from a Spurs point of view. Um, look, they, they, they've, they've got a real disconnect now, haven't they, between the supporters and the ownership and Daniel Levy needs to pull something out of the bag that's um, that, that that's a huge sticking plaster and and getting the the favourite back, getting the the, the guy that, that that sort of built um, what he had back, um, getting Poch to come back and reinject the the culture, the soul, the meaning into it um, is a, is, would be a, a huge coup for him. Um, for me, the interesting element is why Pochettino would want to go back. Um, why he does want to go back, if that's the case. Um, it's, you know, it's that old saying, things never seem to work quite as well second time around in football, maybe in life. Um, and for Poch, you know, he left in order to progress. He left because he was frustrated that that, that believe he wasn't giving him the, the final signings he needed to, to push over the line. He'd be coming back to a, a team that needs more signings and is further behind than than where he left. I guess for him, it might be more of a reflection on how badly PSG has gone. And um, there's no sugar coating it to go to PSG and not win the title is quite an achievement, let's be honest. Um, and this, you know, we were talking about Manchester United earlier on and, and Poch. And one thing that did strike me was he's in the same situation as Solskjaer in some ways, in some ways, in that he's not—he's a manager that hasn't got over the line yet. Um, and for United, if they're looking to get over the line, I'm not sure if Pochettino represents progress. But for Spurs, they're just looking to get back to being the Tottenham that competes in the top four and the Tottenham that their supporters love and the Tottenham that you know maybe young uh, developing players want to play for. So in those terms, Pochettino makes a lot of sense. 
Gutted to hear you say that a league title in Norway in a cup with Mulder is, is not getting over the line, Jonathan. Very rude to Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, naturally. Oh, um, <laughs> but I know what you mean. Um, Tom Clark, I, uh, for me, this is strange, only because it feels like almost a, a desperate attempt to keep Harry Kane happy and say that, that look, the good times will be back very, t- very soon. No need for you to leave. You'll get the best out of... You and, and Son and, and Dyer and, and Deli Alley, we're going to get the boys back together again, basically. I, I don't see it as progressive. I just see it as a way of, of appeasing the fans, who, of course, are very unhappy right now. It's funny you say get the boys back together. It does almost feel like one of those reunion tours that the big bands do from time to time, where, you know, you get the manager back in and let's live Ajax all over again. Charge the fans, you know, get them into the new stadium. We'll put it on the screen. 50 quid a ticket. <laughs> You know, get a drink in your fancy pint pot that fills from the bottom. We'll have a lovely time. Forget about it. No, don't worry. Harry Kane's not going to leave. No, we've not got a really aging squad with no real direction. No, don't worry about it. We've not been overtaken completely by Leicester. It's fine. It's fine. It's got disaster written all over it for me, for everyone involved, for Levy, for Pochettino, for Tottenham. I don't see any good coming from it because in order to do it properly, You'd have to, there'd have to be a more coherent plan than just bringing Pochettino. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. Gregor talked about it very passionately a few weeks ago on the podcast about where Tottenham were heading and worries he had about them heading in a similar direction to Arsenal. I think, I think he was right in to an extent. And I think with Harry Kane almost certain to leave, there's so much work to be done with that squad. Um, and yeah, the re- the reunion tour would not be a sellout, I don't think. Tom Roddy, uh, what's Daniel Levy thinking here? Because he said recently that you know he'd almost lost sight of the DNA of the club and, and what what it really meant to the fans. I mean, is this just there to to, to treat them, get them back through the the, the turnstiles, as Tom said? Because well, look, I think Mauricio Pochettino is a good manager. From my perspective, I don't know why he wants to go back to Tottenham. They're not going to spend the money that he needs to really revamp that squad to be a, a, a real competitor. So, so why is he going there? The reason that he almost left and stayed out of a job for so long was because his stock was high. The reason that he's got the job at Paris Saint-Germain, where you've got a big pot of money to spend, and really the goal is to win the Champions League, is because apparently he's a top manager. And I don't think a top manager goes to Tottenham Hotspur right now. I wouldn't understand Pochettino going back but I totally understand it from the other side. Uh, and I'm not, I mean, it, maybe it's partially an attempt to to get Harry Kane to stay, uh, but it would take a lot more than Mauricio Pochettino walking back through the doors to, to, to keep him. I think they'd need to make some some pretty impressive signings as well, which which are not going to happen. So, but I think there is, there, that aside, uh, Pochettino is the man who who built Tottenham um, up to to where they are now, and I think Tottenham are in are looking at a summer in which a rebuild is needed, regardless of of whether Kane went or not. And of course, with the likelihood of him going and a pot of money to spend, then who who better to do it than Mauricio Pochettino? So I think it makes sense problem for me is that if it if it doesn't happen then which which i actually can't see it happening but if it doesn't happen i just feel like it's another step in 
an embarrassing situation for Tottenham in the last few couple of months. Sacking Jose Mourinho six days before a final and putting a 29-year-old inexperienced coach in Ryan Mason uh, at the helm of a game that that it gives them an opportunity to win a first trophy in 13 years. And then they've had situations where Eric Ten Hag's been involved in talks and they just seem to be being palmed away. Nagelsmann was the same, ends up at Bayern Munich. Um, I mean, funnily, I I think it would be a, a... Maybe it would be a bit too much of a Jose Mourinho situation, but I, 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 I'm always so impressed with Antonio Conte as a coach. But it would be a disaster off the field, so that one probably doesn't work. I don't know. I don't know where they go from here. Pochettino makes total sense for Tottenham. It doesn't make total sense for Pochettino. We'll see if it happens uh, over the coming weeks and, and days, probably. I'm sure, but. Um, it would be a huge story to see him return uh, to the, the Premier League. I don't know how much better it will make Tottenham Hotspur next year because there's a big, big job on his hands to get the best out of that squad and just sort it out, really, in terms of who plays where, who stays, etc., etc. But, of course, all the fundamentals to have a great club at Tottenham. Now the infrastructure's been put in, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, with a new stadium and a fantastic new training ground as well. And I'm sure he's going to get paid the money he wants. So we'll see what Daniel Levy can come up with. We do want to finally look ahead to what has already been and will, I think, continue to be over the next few days, a fantastic EFL playoffs this season. Tom, I wonder how you're feeling going into the weekend. Um, your, your beloved Lincoln City, of course, involved in a, a playoff final. I mean, even just as you introduced this segment, Hugh, my nerves ratcheted up a little bit and that kind of sick feeling that I think every fan who was in the playoffs gets arrived in the pit of my stomach. Um, We were obviously part of quite a very tense semi-final and have reached the final uh, in in fairly dramatic fashion. Um, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic. I'm going to go to my first game of the season with my dad. Um, I'm not sure whether a playoff final, I'm not sure whether a playoff final is a good or a bad place to be doing that, but it'll be nice to, um, to be doing that with my dad again. So that'll add to the emotions of the occasion. And uh, I, I'll turn into a very cliched manager and say that I'm just going to try and enjoy it, Hugh. I'm just going to try and enjoy it. Knowing full well knowing full well that like all the other fans of the six teams in playoff finals this weekend, I definitely won't. <laughs> the playoffs have already been a thing of beauty, let's be honest. Brentford coming from two goals down on aggregate to beat 10-man Bournemouth with that crazy first goal from Dan Juma, 60-yard one-on-one with a goalkeeper. Uh, they're going to take on Swansea, of course, in the Championship playoff final, but in League One, a three-all draw in the semis. Blackpool reaching Wembley. They're going to take on Tom's beloved Lincoln. 42-year-old Kevin Ellison, the oldest scorer in in playoff history. Newport going through. They're going to play Morecambe, who could be in the third tier for the first time in their 101-year history. It's a beautiful thing, the playoffs. And also, of course, without VAR, it is as pure football as you're going to see right now in England. You know, that and that. I think makes it a little bit more special. We even saw a couple of offside goals and I didn't begrudge them. Let's let's put it that way, Tom. Yeah, well, I mean, if Blackpool's late winner and it's offside, you might be, I might be changing my view on VAR. But no, you're quite right. It is, it is football in its maddest and purest form. And there are some great stories. I mean, the championship, that's going to be a great final. Um, we're obviously talking about the big final in the Champions League on Saturday. 
Brentford against Swansea is two teams that have been building to this moment for quite a while. Um, Steve Cooper at Swansea has done a lot of work with them this season to take them on from being that, oh, we're a young side who play the right way. They've got a lot of grit about them this season in the games that I've watched. A lot of good game management, a lot of good uh, playing to the referee and doing the right things that you need to win these big, big games. I think they did really well to get past Barnsley and they did it in a really impressive way in that they took Barnsley on in all the ways that we've been praising Barnsley for um, this season. So I think, and that obviously they're going up against Brentford, everyone's favourite team to watch in the playoffs because you know it's going to be fairly dramatic. Um, I've got a friend who's a Brentford fan who even at half an hour after one of the most fantastic games, you know, it was his first game in the new stadium, 3-1, comeback win. I was like, you must be feeling amazing. He's like, no, I already feel ill thinking about the final. Um, so there's a lot riding on it for them. And in League Two, it's the Kevin Ellison derby. Ellison obviously had a long time at Morecambe and left in fairly acrimonious fashion. Um, could he come off the bench and score another great goal? I mean, I'm always telling people to watch things. If no one's seen his goal that he scored in that playoff semi-final against Forest Green, have have a look. I mean, take the ball, takes the ball on the turn, takes the touch out of his feet, kind of like a chipped curling shot in off the bar. It was absolutely fantastic. So there's, there's great stories. I'm thoroughly excited for all you neutrals out there who are going to enjoy it. There's nothing like the, the playoffs and Tom's very eloquently summed up the English ones, but I, I just wanted to mention Charlie Adam. If we're talking about playoffs, oh, yeah. um, I mean, for anyone that hasn't seen it, um, you don't even have to watch the game because the game wasn't wasn't particularly good, but Dundee Kilmarnock on Monday night, um, just watch the celebrations afterwards. Just watch Charlie Adam and the Dundee players. It's one of the, be- one of the best stories of the season for me. You know, guys had a, the career that Charlie's had, um, went back to play for his hometown club, took, you know, unimaginable wage cut, really, if you if you understand the difference in pay in the Scottish Championship to to English football and, and did it because it's, it's his dad's club, it's his family club. Um, and, you know, in sitting there in midfield, was able to drive Dundee back to the, 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 the top flight in Scotland and just seeing what it meant to him, just, it, 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 it was, you know, after a season where we've, we've kind of, seen different forces trying to pull football in different directions you could just see meaning there you could just see a guy there playing for for for, for what football should be about and and the, the the second best thing about the celebration was just looking at the players teeth and just remembering the old days when footballers didn't um, all go and get 30 grand uh, <laughs> dental jobs you can still see you can still see that in the Scottish second tier that is true yeah look look. Uh, for some reason Charlie Adam looks like he's had a really difficult hard paper route for the last 15 years as opposed to being um, a Premier League footballer with all the glitz and glamour that goes with it but there you go made of stern stuff uh, just quickly on the championship playoff final in England I, I think Brentford and Swansea they play football the right way they, they almost play football you know a Premier League style of football which I think has almost cost Brentford results in the past the pitch at Wembley is big and it is slow. Brentford found it hard to deal with in the championship final last year. Hopefully they will have learned from that experience. Steve Cooper will have a plan for Swansea as well. Who do you see going up very, very quickly? Tom Roddy, I'll start with you. I see Brentford being being the winner. I think they're they're I feel like they're ready this year. Um I mean, they they, they were ready they were ready last year. Um I think Swansea, Swansea have 
they control games really well and they're i think it's set up to be a brilliant game because they they do control games really well and they're a they're a good opponent for for brentford to have Mark Gurhey at the back is excellent. Matt Grimes is such a good central midfielder. Um, Brentford just have those those key players who can win a game, and I and I, I'm not sure about Swansea's Swansea's ability up front. So if 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 they can get ahead, Swansea, then then they have a chance. Otherwise, I see it being Brentford. It'll be fascinating to see if they do what they what they do in the Prem. The only question mark I've got is Andre Ayew, who just has the ability to, to win that game with all his knowledge and um, his, his confidence in, in, in an instant. Um, if he has a moment, it could change. But I, I, think, I think Brentford have been good enough to be in the Prem for a couple of years and, and we'll learn from last year and do it. You agree, Tom? I actually, there's something about Swansea that the more I've watched them, and particularly in those semi-finals, that I just could see them frustrating Brentford. Um, and I think... Brentford have got that in them to be a frustrated team and lose their heads a bit. <clears throat> Even in that semi-final, they came back, but it was in a mad-capped, very men- crazy, oh, it's all all over the place. They were kicking off and people getting booked and things like that. And I think I could expect Swansea to play to that to that mindset. Um, and as Johnny said, Andre, I shouldn't be in the championship. He scored a fantastic goal against Barnsley. And I could see him doing that again. Um Freddie Woodman's been excellent in goal for Swansea as well. He could have another big game. So it would be really interesting. But there's something about it that says that this Swansea team, with the added year that Cooper's had with them, are the worst team for this Brentford team to play. And I could just see it being one of those games where Swansea, Swansea edge it. Both of the league games, by the way, between these two sides finished one all. So you can see they are pretty evenly matched when they go up head to head. We'll see if we've got another grandstand finish in the EFL playoffs this weekend. And again, we will reflect on the match on Monday. Uh, but Tom Clark, Tom Roddy, Jonathan Northcroft, thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. So Tom Roddy, enjoy the Champions League final, you lucky boy. And Tom Clark, good luck to Lincoln this weekend. You're not on a Monday, are you? I, it depends. I might never speak on the podcast again, <laughs> depending on how things go on Sunday. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm not looking forward to it in lots of ways. I'm trying to stay positive. It's, it's good. I'm, I'm going to the game. I should be grateful. I'm very fortunate. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be back to tell you all about what's happened this weekend on Monday morning. But my thanks to Tom Clark, Tom Roddy and Jonathan Northcroft. And thank you for listening to the game podcast once again remember you can get the times and the sunday times across all of your devices right now for more of our award-winning journalism uh, just go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started and remember if you sign up today you can get yourself one month free we will see you on monday <laughs>